Well, welcome everybody to tonight's uh, public lecture. My name's Robin Archer and I'm the convener of the Ralph Miliband program here at the London School of Economics. And I, I want to welcome you to tonight's talk, which is both the fourth in this term series on the future of the left um, by the Ralph Miliband program. And it's also co-sponsored by the sociology department as the David Glass Memorial Lecture and we're grateful for that co-sponsorship. Um, our speaker tonight is Professor Eric Olin Wright. He's Professor of Sociology at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and he's also currently the President of the American Sociological Association, um, an accolade, I think it's safe to say, which is bestowed on the most eminent sociologists in America by their peers. Now, Professor Wright, I think, as some of you will know, is particularly well known for his work on class and inequality, and he's published widely both monographs and articles in that area. He's also been very involved in a, a group uh, referred to often as the analytical Marxists, who um, I apologise for saying in their own words, they describe themselves as the no-bullshit Marxists. And what they've tried to do, these analytical Marxists, he was a founding member of this group, was to maintain both the key insights of Marxism but um, make them compatible with the rigours of the Anglo-American analytical tradition of thought. Well, in addition to his scholarly work, Professor Wright has never stopped being an activist. I was going to say he was educated at Harvard, Oxford and Berkeley, but I think it's also safe to say that he was educated in the new left. And that aspect of his um, formation has remained with him. And both this activist and this scholarly concerns come together in his latest major work, Envisaging Real Utopias, um, which was recently published by Verso. And that's the topic he's going to be talking about with us tonight. He's going to be talking um, for just, just short of an hour and then we're going to stop and there's going to be space for questions from the floor. So can I ask you to welcome our speaker tonight, Professor Wright. What's the, what's the routine for, um, is there a clicker or? Um, this looks like a clicker. Does this work? We need a person in red to yes, answer that question. Yes, it does work. Okay. Um, I believe it was six years ago that I gave a talk at LSE. I don't recall if it was actually in this room or not. That was at the very beginning of the writing part of this project. I uh, then subsequently gave talks around the world and made a point of writing the book in the context of ongoing dialogue. I put drafts of chapters online, and as I revised them, I updated the online version of the manuscript, so that when I gave talks, people would have a chance to read the general framework of what I was doing. And I would um, then revise rapidly after my visits around the world. The, the ideas that I'll be presenting today, then, are one iteration, uh, or maybe one and a half iterations by now, beyond what is in the book, also as the result of ongoing dialogue. It's the way I like to think producing these ideas in a real utopian manner, uh, recognizing the social quality, the social character of the production of all knowledge, but trying to make that more systematic uh, and reflexive in the production of the ideas that I'm working on here. Um, <clears throat> what I want to do in this talk is lay out 
the overall architecture of this way of thinking about social transformation and social change. Uh, I will be touching lightly then on all of the major themes of both the book and the subsequent work I'm doing. And then in the discussion afterwards, the, uh, the many gaps and under-described <laughs> parts that you will undoubtedly identify, I'd be happy to do further elaborations. So here's the starting point. The starting point of this work is, can be thought of as what I would call a foundational empirical claim of all varieties of critical social theory and, and uh, critical so sociology. And I think of this as fundamentally an empirical claim. There's, there's lots of research and data to support this argument. In its most abstract way, it is that many forms of human suffering and many deficits in human flourishing are the result of existing institutions and social structures. Not acts of God, not the result of human nature, and not the result of just our psychology, uh, but of our institutions. And that's, of course, a very abstract claim. All, and I think it's uncontroversial. I think you cannot be a sociologist uh, and say, no, that's not right. All the debate, of course, comes when you actually try to identify what it is about the institutions that generate forms of suffering and deficits in human flourishing. Of course, that's immensely controversial. But the abstract claim itself, I just think of as the very foundation, perhaps even the foundation of sociology. I mean, how many people would bother going into sociology if they didn't believe this? This is what brings people to the study of society, even if in the end they end up doing not such critical work. There's a connected thesis, which is much more complex, actually. I don't think as straightforward as the, what I'm calling the foundational empirical claim. And that is that transforming those institutions and structures has the potential to substantially reduce human suffering and expand the possibilities for human flourishing. That second thesis should not be thought of as simply a logical corollary of the first one. Might seem that way. Well, if suffering and deficits in flourishing are caused by existing institutions, then changing those institutions would reduce suffering. It seems almost like a derivation. The problem is that the cures can always be worse than the disease that any attempt at transforming institutions so as to reduce human suffering can blow up in your face and make things worse. That's, after all, the fundamental thesis of Frederick Hayek, in a way. I mean, one might argue that Hayek's primary thesis in The Fatal Conceit is that even if there are flaws in institutions, the deliberate attempt to transform those institutions will always produce unintended consequences that are worse than the problems which they attempt to solve. That's a kind of perhaps a slightly stronger statement of his perspective, but I think a, rough, a roughly accurate way of describing his skepticism about our capacity to, by deliberate means, transform our institutions. So while institutions may evolve in adaptive ways that improve life, it's always an evolutionary process of adaptation rather than deliberate intentional transformation. Well, I defend both of these theses, and it's the second one which provides the motivation then for the Real Utopias project. It's a way of thinking about how should we go about the task of transforming institutions 
so as to reduce those aspects of human suffering generated by those institutions and try to reduce the deficits in human flourishing that they create as well. To embark on that project, I think we have four broad tasks that we need to address. And I'll spend some time on each of these. First, we have to elaborate the moral foundations through which we evaluate institutions. What are the moral standards by which we ask the question? Do these institutions need transforming? So the moral foundations of the argument. Secondly, a diagnosis and critique of institutions in light of those moral standards. Third, an account of alternatives. What alternative institutional designs, what transformations of those institutions would better realize the moral ideals specified in the first task. And finally, an account of transformation. If the diagnosis and critique tells us why we want to leave the social world in which we live, and the theory of alternatives tells us something about where we want to go, a theory of transformation tells us at least something about how to get from here to there. So what I want to do is briefly touch on each of these four tasks. Uh, as a way of giving you a sense of the overall character of this argument. So first, moral foundations. I'm not, of course, pretending that the moral foundations which I'll lay out here are exhaustive. There are certainly other moral standards that one might bring to bear in the judgment about institutions. But here are the three principles that animate uh, the work that I do on these questions. First, an equality and equality principle. In a socially just society, all persons would have broadly equal access to the material and social means necessary to live a flourishing life. Uh, that's a loaded formulation of a notion of equality. Let me just point out a couple of elements which I think are important. First, the notion of equal access. The standard way in certainly in the United States, I suspect in Britain as well, that uh, people talk about social justice as equal opportunity. So equal opportunity to succeed in life is the criterion by which a system would be judged as just or fair or unfair. I prefer equal access to the social and material means necessary to live a flourishing life rather than just equal opportunity. Uh, for a variety of reasons. I think equal opportunity is consistent with all sorts of regimes, all sorts of forms of distribution, which most people would actually find quite distasteful. Uh, the, the kind of simplest example would be a, a lottery, which is fair. Everybody has an equal chance of winning. But if you lose, you live a dreadful life. So an equal opportunity to flourish is not really what we're after. I also think that equal opportunity seems to suggest that as long as the starting gate is fair, then if you screw up, well, too bad, it's your fault. Uh, even the most generous versions that make the distinction between brute luck and option luck, that is luck that you choose, risks that you take knowingly, even those tend to be quite ungenerous in their view of the human capacity to screw up. Uh, myopia, irresponsibility. They, they, they forget that people were adolescents, including the people writing the theories about brute luck and option luck. 
where time horizons are very short. As a sociologist, the vision of individual responsibility embodied in the option luck perspective on equal opportunity, I think many of you will know what I'm referring to by that distinction. It's very bad sociology to imagine that people are, and it's bad cognitive psychology as well, that people have a capacity for forethought, for rational calculation of risks, so that you can really distinguish in a clean way the sorts of risks that lead to screw-ups that they knowingly took in the, in the sense of a poker player takes versus the things which are just bad luck. Well, I think that whole discussion should be sidelined and replaced with a notion that the real moral core of an egalitarian perspective is that to the extent possible, people should have equal access to the conditions to live a flourishing life. Um, you might have to make pragmatic compromises on that. This is not saying that this is itself directly tells you what the design of the institution should be, but that's the ideal. Also note both material and social means necessary. Social means necessary to live a flourishing life are included. This means that issues around stigma and status differentiation are just as important in many contexts as simple material deprivations in defining the conditions under which people can live a flourishing life. Second principle is the principle of democracy. In a fully democratic society, all people would have broadly equal access. Again, the equal access idea, I think, is at the core. Equal access to the necessary means to participate meaningfully in decisions about things which affect their lives. The basic idea of democracy, the value which it's tapping, I think, is the value of self-determination. People should be able to participate in decisions which affect themselves. If the decisions in questions only affect you as an individual, as a separate person, we call that liberty. That is, you should have the right to make decisions about your life that affect only you. You should be able to make those autonomously. When the decisions in question affect you along with other people by virtue of interdependence, they should be party to the decision as well. We call that democracy. It's a very simple kind of principle. But note that liberty and democracy are the same value in this context, in this formulation. They're not two values. They're the same value, but applied to different contexts. The context of interdependency with the lives of others, where the decisions mutually affect many people, all of the people so affected should be part of the decision making. When that's not the case, you should be allowed to make the decisions yourself without interference. But it's the same value, the value that people should be in a position to participate in decisions which shape their fates. Again, of course, with pragmatic issues in the implementation and the design of institutions to realize that value. And finally, third value, sustainability. Future generations should have access to the social and material means to live flourishing lives at least at the same level as the present generation. This is what um, could be called an anthropocentric view of the environment. That is, the moral issues around the sustainability of the environment hinge on reproducing over time the conditions for flourishing human lives. If, for example, it were the case, which it is not, that global warming would make the planet more congenial for human flourishing, imagine us back in the last ice age when we were under a lot of stress because 
of miles of glaciers, uh, making agriculture in much of the northern hemisphere impossible. Well, if that were true, then there'd be reasons to perhaps celebrate global warming. Uh, the reasons uh, to oppose it, in my view, are the way it threatens the conditions for flourishing for future generations. Uh, now, that doesn't mean that one takes a cavalier attitude because of the unintended consequences of all sorts of environmental issues. It's hard to know what might or might not damage the environment for the flourishing of future generations, but that's the principle. The first equality principle and the sustainability principle, therefore, are essentially tapping the same problem. That is, the conditions for human flourishing. In the equality case, it's synchronous. It's at the present time, the conditions for human flourishing across people in the world today. In the sustainability, it's the conditions for human flourishing across time. Well, those are my principles that define the moral foundations. And then what I ask is, well, let's look at different kinds of institutions, and in particular, the political economic institutions of our economic structures, and ask how well do they fare with respect to these three moral foundations. And that's the diagnosis and critique. Um, and I'll, again, rush, rush through these. Uh, I imagine many of these points are familiar anyway. First equality. Capitalism inherently, not contingently, but inherently, generates levels of inequality in income and wealth that systematically violate social justice, which obstruct the moral principle. All people should have broadly equal access to the material and social conditions necessary to live a flourishing life. Those capitalist societies which do better with respect to the egalitarian principle of flourishing do so by being less capitalistic. Now, that's an important point that we'll come back to later. The reason why Sweden or Finland does better with respect to equality of access to the conditions to live a flourishing life is because they are less capitalistic forms of capitalism. It's not that they're just as capitalistic as the United States and for some reason unconnected to the organization of the system of production and distribution, they have solved problems of human flourishing. No, it's because they have done so in ways which reduce the capitalistic character of certain key aspects of the economic system. What used to be called in the days when my intellectual formation occurred, the decommodification of labor, that is, the removal of the conditions of, of individual reproduction from the market, that's a reduction of the capitalist character of capitalism. Uh, capitalism as a system, however, inherently violates social justice, not contingently. Second, democracy. Capitalism generates severe deficits in realizing democratic values by, first, excluding crucial decisions from public deliberation, Second, by allowing private wealth to affect access to political power. And third, by allowing workplace dictatorships. These are three deficits in the realization of democratic values, which are, again, intrinsic to the capitalist character of economic organization. The first is, I think, in some ways the most fundamental. Uh, a capitalist economy is one in which it is completely legitimate 
for the owners of a large factory complex to decide to move it to a low-wage country without consulting or being held accountable by the people whose lives are affected by such a decision. When a factory closes and moves abroad, thousands of people may have their lives adversely affected, and they have no right to participate in that decision. They are, in fact, barred from participating because they have no uh, property rights in the means of production. That's intrinsic to capitalism, that vast arrays of decisions which have huge ramifications for the lives of people are excluded from democratic deliberation. Now, one might still say, okay, yes, that's right. That's clearly a violation of democratic principles. But it's still, on balance, a good thing. Because the gains of efficiency, perhaps, or of productivity, or whatever, however you want to think about what might be desirable about capitalism, are so big that this democratic deficit is just something we have to live with. Uh, give up a little bit of democracy, maybe even give up a lot of democracy for such huge gains in economic growth. Capitalism is, after all, an engine of growth. Uh, and if it turns out to be the only engine of growth, that is, all alternatives to capitalism block growth, well, one might say, too bad. We do like democracy, but we have to give up quite a bit of it in order to have something else we like, economic growth. Now, I don't think that trade-off is there. I think there's good arguments for why, given the character of the development of economic relations, economic productivity in the world today, it's no longer the case that there's a trade-off between democracy and the growth of, well, of economic well-being. Uh, but still, that is a reasonable argument to make. It's not something that can be dismissed. My point here, then, is to indict capitalism for a democratic deficit, which I think is unequivocally correct, that capitalism does generate democratic deficits in the ways I describe here, does not in and of itself mean, therefore, we would want to change capitalism. One might still prefer capitalism to alternatives, because although it, this generates a democratic deficit, the alternatives might generate a growth deficit. And growth might be more important to many people than democracy. Finally, sustainability. Capitalism inherently threatens the quality of the environment for future generations because of imperatives for consumerism and endless growth. Um, it is simply, I think, impossible to imagine 200 years into the future uh, an economic system on the planet we happen to inhabit with its particular physics and eco ecological structures in which the basic condition under which people can learn, earn a living is for economic growth to be constantly refueled. That is the, as we know from the current crisis uh, and the debates over what should be done in Europe today, the key imperative is how can we get in already rich countries, how can we get more economic growth going? Now, it's bizarre in a way. One might imagine, just imagine an alternative universe, perhaps. We have this huge economic crisis, 2007 8, and people say, at last, at last, in the developed rich countries, we can finally put degrowth on the agenda. 
We can finally reorient our economies away from endless growth, endless absorption of the resources and uh, production of carbon emissions and so on. We can finally think about how do we reorient these economies from one in which the livelihoods of people depend upon growth to ones in which the liveliness of people depend upon jobs which connect them to livelihoods, but which lead to, over time, a decline in the uh, emphasis on consumption of stuff in favor of the engagement in activity. Uh, the productivity gains of the last 50 years, if they had been cashed out as lower work weeks rather than more stuff, would have resulted in an average work week with full employment of about 15 hours a week at 1960 standards of living. 1960 standards of living in 1960 people thought were unbelievably high. They thought, my God, after you know, the end of the Second World War and the reconstruction of the economies that had occurred, we were at um, historically the highest standards of living in human history. Well, if the subsequent productivity growth had all been turned into increased leisure rather than increased stuff, the average work week would now be somewhere in the vicinity of 10 to 15 hours a week. Well, capitalism is inconsistent with that. You cannot have a capitalist economy in which the gains of productivity are primarily played out in the form of more leisure, more time, more autonomous control over one's life activity. You can't do that because capitalism requires accumulation, profit-maximizing driven growth, in order for the economic mechanisms of capitalism to be reproduced. And that's incompatible with long-term sustainability. And that doesn't depend upon your philosophical views. I mean, you can be a Nozickian and believe in the absolute sanctity of private property and still be forced to recognize, if you really think through the implications of this economic mechanism, be forced to recognize that capitalism is incompatible with environmental sustainability understood as what contributes to human flourishing. Well, that's the diagnosis and critique. The question then is, of course, well, this is all well and good, but without an alternative, this is just a recipe for gloom and doom. Uh, we know there's plenty of gloom and doom around in the world. Pessimism is easy. Optimism takes a lot of work. You know, that should be a... Uh, it, you know, Gramsci had his famous slogan about uh, the, the need for optimism of the will and pessimism of the intellect. I think we need some optimism of the intellect as well. We ha need to have cognitively sound reasons for believing that alternatives are possible. Uh, the optimism of the will is pretty hard to sustain over time if you have pervasive pessimism of the intellect. So. Uh, much as I admire Gramsci, I don't, don't think the, if you will, the cognitive psychology behind his aphorism w quite works. We need optimism of the intellect, and that means we need to think through the problem of alternatives. This is where the idea of real utopia comes in. The, um, the expression I've used to describe the way I approach this problem. Of course, real utopia is an oxymoron. Uh, utopia is a pun that Thomas More invented uh, a few centuries ago, five, six centuries ago. Uh, it's a pun 
between two Greek roots, one which would mean ideal place and one which would mean no place. So it's the ideal world that doesn't exist anywhere. That's what is captured in the pun of utopia. Uh, so it's obviously meant to be a provocation to put real and utopia together. It suggests that we think about transformation both in terms of utopia, that is, looking for alternatives to dominant institutions that embody our deepest aspirations for a just and humane world, and to do so in a sense without embarrassment. I tell my students when we discuss these things that they should embrace their deepest and highest ideals around this without feeling that to announce them is to be naive. There is a certain, uh, among academics and intellectuals, there's a certain cachet to cynicism and weary sophistication where to exuberantly embrace ideals of equality, democracy, sustainability, and to really take these seriously with passion seems hopelessly naive. Well, I try to encourage my students not necessarily to embrace naivete, but to embrace these ideals without embarrassment, but also to worry about the real part of the oxymoron. That is, to think about alternatives to dominant institutions that are attentive to problems of unintended consequences, self-destructive dynamics, and difficult dilemmas of normative trade-offs. If we care about more than one value, it's very implausible that we can design institutions that fully realize the multiple values we care about without ever hitting tensions, without ever hitting dilemmas, cases where to make further advances with respect to one of the moral criteria which we care about, one might have to pull back on another, to worry about those trade-offs, to worry about self-destructive dynamics. We want institutional innovations and social change which, if accomplished, don't blow up in your face. They don't destroy their own conditions of possibility. And of course, we want to be attentive to problems of unintended consequences. One of the ways, although this is, of course, somewhat glib, but one of the ways of thinking about the sad history of the 20th century is that we had many grand attempts at massive efforts of social change that were destroyed by the power of their unintended consequences. That their unintended consequences swamped the values which they were, on which they were launched. And a real utopian, if you will, is someone who worries about that, but without therefore abandoning the utopian aspirations themselves. Um, here's how I like to frame what's distinctive about this way of thinking about social transformation. Uh, I draw a contrast between what can be called ameliorative reforms as a way of trying to make the world a better place and real utopias. So for ameliorative reforms, what you do is you look at existing institutions, identify their flaws, and propose improvements. It's very simple and straightforward. Uh, you see where the harms are created and you and examine both through theoretical arguments and through practical examination of empirical cases around the world, you see what kinds of changes in these institutions would actually make lives better. That's ameliorative reforms. Real Utopias says, let's envision the contours of an alternative social world that embodies our emancipatory ideals and then look for social innovations 
we can create in the world as it is that moves us in that direction. Sometimes these turn out to be the same as ameliorative reforms. That is, some things which constitute building blocks towards an alternative world also constitute immediate improvements in the conditions of life of people. But the reverse is not true. There are many things which constitute significant and important improvements in the lives of people that do make the world a better place given the flaws which we, in which we live, but which do not move us in the direction we want to go. Um, the simplest example of that, I would, in, at least in the American context, is affirmative action around race. I'm a strong supporter of affirmative action around race. I think it's absolutely essential to overcome the legacies of racism and the ongoing practices of racism in the society. So it's not just that affirmative action is a way of responding to historical problems. It's a way of responding to the here and now problems of racial discrimination as an ongoing source of harm. But it's not a step in the direction of the world that I envision. That is, in the, in the alternative world where the moral principles of equality, democracy, and sustainability are fully realized, in that world, there would be no affirmative action. It might be necessary now in terms of improving the lives of people, but you're not building the institutional elements of the alternative when you do so. Now, that doesn't mean to have hesitations about such, such reforms. They may be absolutely necessary. I think in the United States, for sure, affirmative action is necessary. Uh, I would say the same thing about food stamps. We have a problem of hunger in America. We probably have a problem in places in Britain as well. Food stamps is a particular way of mucking about with the ordinary market for food by creating a special kind of money, a voucher that can be only used to purchase food and only given to people who are poor. And it does indeed alleviate severe hunger. And therefore, the efforts by the Republican Congress to cut back on food stamps to deal with our deficits, I think, are monstrous. Nevertheless, I don't think of food stamps as real utopias. They're not a component of the alternative world that we would want or I would want to create. So the real utopia agenda is to think about transformations that do make the world a better place, but which also constitute the building blocks of the alternative world we want. It's a more demanding idea about how to approach uh, the problem of alternatives and transformation. Well, uh, this is all very abstract. I have faced the inevitable time constraint of how much detail to go into um, in the following. So first, I have a list of examples. I could easily, in a engaging way for me, because I love talking about these, spend the rest of our time just discussing the examples. But I also have a formal theoretical framework within which I locate these examples. Let me, uh, let me just make a few comments on the examples. I'm, uh, just so you know, part of what I'm doing when I'm giving talks these days as as president of the American Sociological Association, I have to give an address, right? That's what presidents of associations do. And in August, I will be giving the <coughs> presidential address of the American Sociological Association on precisely these themes. And I'm trying to figure out what I can bear to leave out and what I absolutely have to have and how much time each bit takes. So 
you're my guinea pigs for part of my <laughs> part of the exposition. So let me let me see. Let me let me just discuss a couple of these examples uh, without going into detail, um, and then I'll at least sketch the broad outlines of the theoretical framework within which these examples then fit together as a, in a whole. Uh, first, um, uh, well, let me go to number two, Wikipedia. Uh, so Wikipedia is a preposterous idea. Uh, before it happened, nobody would have thought it was possible. I mean, Mad, put yourself back, year 2000. Somebody proposes, okay, let's launch an encyclopedia that will be edited by several hundred thousand people around the world, unpaid, uh, will make it free to anybody on the in the world who can get access to the internet, no charge, no payment for it. Anybody can edit anybody's entry. A highfalutin professor and a high school hobbyist can both edit the same article and correct each other's mistakes. Uh, and I predict that within 10 years, or 11 years, this is started in 2001, this is 2012, this encyclopedia will have about 4 million entries, mostly pretty good, that around 2005 most academics would say this is ridiculous, nobody should look at it. By 2012, I have yet to meet an academic who doesn't use Wikipedia. <laughs> um, and in 2012, the Encyclopedia Britannica will announce that it will no longer produce a print edition because there's no longer a market for it. Now, this is simply not something that anybody would have thought was possible. The incentive structures are all wrong. The uh, quality control is impossible. Anybody can correct anybody. And yet, over time, most entries have gotten better and better. As um, one of my initiatives, that I'm sort of smugly pleased with as a president of the American Sociological Association is to create a American Sociological Association Wikipedia initiative so that on the ASA portal, on the website, you can click on the ASA Wikipedia initiative and go to a website that makes it easy for professors to learn how to give Wikipedia writing assignments to their students. Uh, which I did in a, grad, in a PhD seminar last fall to much success. Every one of my students got to publish something in the course of the semester because they wrote or edited or added to Wikipedia articles as part of the coursework in my Theories of the State seminar. Um, and my idea then is that over time, if sociologists as academics become more involved in writing and editing Wikipedia articles, if it's seen as one of the things you do, because it's a public good that we all use, we should contribute to the public good, that the sociology-related entries will gradually improve over time and become a better part of the intellectual commons that we share freely around the world. Well, Wikipedia is, a, to me, a real utopia. It's an improvement with respect to the equality principle of equal access to the conditions to live a flourishing life and the democratic principle because of the participatory and egalitarian character of its production. It's also, although less obviously, a contributor to the sustainability principle because it's a component of a less consumerist form of life where people get their enjoyment and their fellow feeling and their connectedness through um, activity 
rather than through consumption and the production of stuff. Uh, well, if I keep on at this pace with other examples, <laughs> so you can see there are many examples. They're very different. Wikipedia is a very different kind of example from the Mondragon Worker Cooperative. That's a cooperative, a cluster of cooperatives in northern Spain in the Basque region that has roughly 100,000 members producing high-end industrial products, refrigerators, auto parts, and the like, among other things, uh, and very successful and uh, able so far to withstand the shocks of the financial crisis in Spain much better in a much more robust and resilient way than uh, conventional capitalist firms. Well, let me um, move to the theoretical framework. So the, we got these 10 examples. There's many more. The question is, how do these fit together? Do they constitute as a set of, as, as a set of institutional innovations? Do they constitute the core of an alternative economic structure? And how should we think of that alternative? Um, I like to refer to the way of thinking about the alternative as taking the social in socialism seriously. The word socialism, like the word social democracy, has the word social in it. But most discussions of socialism and social democracy, in most discussions, the word social actually doesn't do a whole lot of work. Mostly discussions of socialism center on what the state does, not how is society organized not on the social aspect of social hyphenism. I want to propose an alternative way of thinking about socialism, which remains foundationally anti-capitalist in its character, which affirms the values of equality, democracy, and sustainability, but which is a society-centered concept of socialism within which the state plays a role, but it's a role subordinated to society as opposed to the leading role in the alternative. To lay out my kind of framework of how to think about socialism in uh, 12 minutes, is that what I've got? In 12 minutes, um, we will have to do so at a fairly rapid clip. So fasten your seat belts and uh, shall we say pay attention because I will go through these ideas fairly quickly. I have to introduce some concepts though. This, this is a kind of conceptual apparatus that needs its foundations made clear. So first, there are three kinds of power deployed in economic systems around which I build my notion of a social socialism. Economic power, power based on the control over economic resources. State power, power based on the control of rule making and rule enforcing over territory. And social power, power based on the capacity to mobilize voluntary cooperation and collective action. I'm using the term social power in a technically restricted way. So some people might say this is all social. Of course it is in one sense. I'm using social power in this narrower way to mean power that's based on voluntary cooperation and collective action. If you want a little bumper sticker, you can say you can get people to do things by bribing them, economic power, forcing them, state power, or persuading them, social power. We can then differentiate economic structure in terms of the centrality of one or another form of, of these three forms of power. These, this then are power-centered definitions or dis differentiations 
of economic structures. Capitalism is an economic structure within which economic activity is controlled through the exercise of economic power. What I will call statism is an economic structure within which economic activity is controlled through the exercise of state power. And socialism is an economic structure within which economic activity is controlled through the exercise of social power. Again, power based on the capacity to mobilize voluntary cooperation and collective action. These are three ideal type economic structures differentiated by the centrality of different forms of power. The Soviet Union in these terms was a statist economy, not a socialist economy. It was an economy in which economic activity was primarily controlled through the exercise of state power. Socialism defined in this way is equivalent to the notion of broad economic democracy. Because after all, what do we mean by democracy in just the ordinary use? The ordinary meaning of democracy is that state power is subordinated to social power. Democracy doesn't mean that state power disappears. It means that it is not autonomous. It is controlled by the voluntary cooperation and collective action of people through a set of institutions, political parties and elections being good examples of the institutions that make it possible for voluntary association and collective action to be translated into the subordination of state power. And thus, in a democracy, social power dominates state power. Well, this is an extension of that idea to the economy as a whole, in which both state power and economic power are subordinated to social power. Um, one final core conceptual element, hybrids. All real economic systems are complex combinations of capitalism, statism, and socialism. We call an economy capitalist when capitalism is dominant is dominant. The possibility of socialism then revolves around the problem of enlarging and deepening the socialist component of a hybrid and weakening the capitalist component. All economies are hybrid. They all contain capitalist, socialist, and statist elements. What it means to move in the direction of socialism to build alternatives within a capitalist society that move us towards socialism is to strengthen the social empowerment component and to weaken the capitalist component. I refer to this as the problem of building configurations of social empowerment. So hybrids are the key idea. Now the way I proceed to develop the actual, oh this is not, uh, I don't know why. <laughs> uh, the way I proceed to actually build the framework for analyzing specific examples then is to use um, a kind of visual vocabulary for thinking about how these different forms of power, these different uh, types of power that are deployed in economic relations, how they are configured. Uh, the elements of this visual vocabulary are the three forms of power, arrows indicating the direction of power constraints and the thickness of the arrow indicating how strong the power constraint might be. Let me just show you some examples. Ordinary democracy, as I said, is a case where state power is subordinated to social power. Corporate control of political parties, as in the United States, is an example where economic power subordinates social power through the funding of political parties. You can put these uh, elements together. Uh, corporate control of state power via the funding of political parties would be represented by the top configuration here. 
social control of economic power via the state regulation of capital would be represented by the bottom configuration. Economic power is regulated by capital, but cap by state power, but state power is subordinated to social power. These are the elements then which I combined to create this overall framework for understanding configurations of power relations in both capitalism and in my hypothesized or projected um, socialism. Uh, here's the capitalist configurations. Economic power is dominant, meaning that it both directly uh, dominates the econo uh, economic activity, investment and production and distribution of goods and services, and it indirectly affects economic activity via the subordination of social power and state power to economic power. Configurations of social power, therefore, uh, or in a parallel manner, constitute a system of power relations in which social power directly affects economic activity and indirectly affects economic activity through, on the one hand, the subordination of economic power to social power, and on the other, the subordination of state power to social power. Now it's 7.25, and I won't be able to actually go through the um, specific decomposition of this framework into its components. I will, without comment, I, and I think literally, sometimes I say without comment, and then I actually comment <laughs> on the pictures. I will run through the seven configurations just by showing them to you giving you this kind of visual array as a blur as it passes, and then get to some concluding comments. So at, at least we get a conclusion rather than just a fading out at the end. OK. Statist socialism. Social power controls state power, which, and state power regulates economic activity. Authoritarian statism is a degenerate form. That's what happened in the Soviet Union. Social democracy at its core is the social, democrat is social democratic statist regulation. Capitalist statist regulation has state power subordinated to economic power. A second element of social democracy is what can be called associational democracy. This is connected to uh, neocorporatism in various ways. Social capitalism, economic power directly allocates resources in economic activity, but it is subordinated to social power through various mechanisms. Uh, union representation on board of directors, uh, union investment funds being used to, uh, uh, to gain uh, leverage within firms would be an example of social capitalism. Corporatist capitalist self-regulation, uh, represents economic power directly controlling social power, business associations regulating capital, but at the behest of business association uh, of capital would be an example. The, social, the core of the social economy is direct social power regulating economic activity. The cooperative market economy has this configuration. Mondragon would be an example of a cooperative market economy. And participatory socialism is this um, configuration. Participatory budgeting, for those of you who know what participatory budgeting is all about, in places like Porto Alegre would be an instance of participatory socialism. 
where social power directly regulates economic activity as well as indirectly through the democratic state. If you put these together then, you get this array of configurations within which you can locate those specific examples of institutional innovation that I described as real utopia. Now my central thesis then around transformation of capitalism is that to the extent we can create new institutional innovations along all of these configurations, to the extent that we can do that, by building new institutions inside of capitalism, we erode the capitalist character of capitalism, building the alternative in the world in which we live. And whether or not that eventually crosses some gestalt shift, some phase shift threshold in which the power relations as a whole flip from a capital-centered, economic power-centered system as a whole to one in which social power becomes central, that I don't know whether that's possible. But what I do know is that moving in that direction ameliorates the problems that exist in capitalism in a way that builds in a prefigurative manner the alternative that we might want. The actual transformation of capitalism through the building of these um, different configurations of power uh, takes place through three different kinds of logics of strategy. These are the ways in which political parties, community activists, social movements, the ways in which in practice the transformation problem is uh, engaged. Uh, first, there are ruptural strategies which imagine a radical break and discontinuity in institutions. That's associated with the revolutionary socialist tradition. Secondly, there are what I call interstitial strategies. Build new institutions in the cracks and niches within the old. That's associated with certain currents in the anarchist tradition. Worker co-ops are a good example, and anarchists historically have had an affinity for the building of uh, worker co-ops. And symbiotic transformations involve using existing institutions to solve problems in ways that transform those institutions. That's associated with the social democratic tradition. Uh, if you like a bumper sticker, you can smash the state, ignore the state, or use the state. That would correspond to the, those three traditions. My way of thinking about the strategic vision for the 21st century is that ruptural strategies directed at capitalism as a system are implausible. It's simply not plausible that capitalism as a system can, you can have a rupture at the system level. But ruptures in specific institutions, in specific institutional clusters, may be needed to open up possibilities for symbiotic transformation. Symbiotic transformation, that is using the state to open up spaces for transformation, using the state to solve problems in ways that open up greater possibilities of social transformation, symbiotic strategies are needed to expand the space for interstitial transformation. And finally, interstitial strategies create the building blocks of emancipatory alternatives. And thinking about this interconnection of the different strategies, rather than thinking of these as strategic alternatives, rather they're strategic complementarities, is the way I think left movements, both political parties and social movements, uh, need to think about how to build alternatives through the transformation of the world in which we live. Finally, five conclusions. I'll be within a minute of the mandated uh, 7.30. Five conclusions. First, 
Transcending capitalism means the democratization of the economy. That's the guts of the transformation problem. How do we create a democratically accountable economic order? And what are the institutions which make that possible? But those institutions that make it possible need to be thought of as how do we build them in the world in which we live rather than in a world after, as we used to say, after the revolution. Second, institutional pluralism and heterogeneity. There are many configurations of social empowerment. There is no single unitary model. Uh, statist socialism, the classic model in the Marxist tradition of what an alternative to capitalism would look like, does have a place within a socialist transformation, within a process of social empowerment, but it's only one of seven configurations of power relations. All seven need to be thought about, and we need to think about the different practical institutions which embody these different ways of doing it. Third, there are no guarantees. Socialism understood in the way I'm proposing should be thought of as a terrain for working for equality, democracy, and sustainability, not a guarantee for realizing those ideals. Uh, fourth, strategic indeterminacy. There's no one way. It's not just that there are multiple pluralistic forms of institutions that embody the principle of social empowerment, of a democratic economy. But there's also no singular strategic path. Uh, we have to think about complementarities between heterogeneous strategic logics. And finally, what I would call the opacity of the future limits of possibility. We cannot know in advance how far we can go in this trajectory of social empowerment. Uh, as I said, I don't know if it's possible to reach some tipping point in the future where social power has been built in sufficiently diverse settings in a broad and complex ecology of organizations in an economy such that the cumulative effect of those different configurations is to change the overall logic of the system and its subsequent dynamics. I don't know if it's possible to reach that level, and I don't think anyone else does either. Uh, it's easy to imagine, as both conservative economists do and many radical uh, socialists, that they know in advance what the limits of possibility are. My critics on the left say that it's impossible to build alternatives inside of capitalism that could ever be corrosive of capitalist power. Uh, the critics on the right say it's impossible to build alternatives within capitalism that could ever be corrosive of capitalist power. The latter say so because there is no alternative. The former say so because they believe there is an alternative, but it cannot be built within the world in which we live. I think both of those positions are uninformed. Uh, they're, um, they're ideologically driven in the strong sense of not based on clear and convincing argument. I think it's indeterminate. The opacity of future limits are, is a central feature of the trajectory into the future. And since we can't know in advance how far we can go, I think the best we can do is try to build alternatives in the world in which we live and hope that they push the logics of system reproduction to the point where we can build further in the future. Thank you very much.
Well, thank you very much, Eric, for an absolutely superb lecture. I mean, I'm just particularly struck by the intellectual and moral ambition of your project. And I think it's also particularly striking the, the, the call for optimism. Um, and a call for optimism which, to my ears anyway, was also one which was compatible with certain core conservative insights about unintended consequences. Um, we're going to open up the floor for questions, but just before I do, I want to draw your attention to the fact, which I should have drawn to before, that um, Professor Wright's book is on sale outside um, after the lecture, and he'll be staying here shortly afterwards, um, so if you want to get him to sign it. Um, you can take away your own um, optimistic vision and study it further. But let me now uh, turn to you and see if we have uh, a number of questions. I'll start by taking individuals, but I may take you in groups. Um, the gentleman in the middle. There's a, there's a thing. You can wait for this. Hello, my name is Vili Lerovilt. I'm a visiting fellow at the LSE Asia Research Centre, actually from Finland, incidentally. Uh, thank you for the very inspiring lecture. Just one question regarding the, the sort of fundamentals, the moral foundations, which I thought was a very good way to sort of start the argument. Um, you referred to human flourishing only in relative terms, but it was not a value in itself. I found that a little bit uh, strange, perhaps. Could you comment on that, please? Um. Of course, I think it's an enormous value in itself, which is why equal access to the conditions to flourish matter from a point of view of social justice. So the specification of that egalitarian principle is, why should we care about equality? What's the thing that's our bottom line? I care about equality because I value human flourishing. And therefore, I value that all people have equal access to the conditions for human flourishing. Uh, but yes, of course. Uh, so there is a more fundamental value, in sure. fact, underlying these values. Right. Okay, right. thank you. Okay, if you're right to take some notes, I might take more than one yeah. question at once. Although I, uh, I personally prefer the more dialogic form of just responding to individuals rather than groups, just because. Okay, well let's let's stick with that for a minute, but okay. we also want to give people a chance to to have a talk. Um, so um, this gentleman here, and then after him, the gentleman at the back. And then the gentleman up the top. <laughs> okay, thanks very much. I definitely share the cause for uh, optimism and uh, utopian solutions. Um, two questions. One has to do with um, democracy and the need you've been pointed of uh, transforming institutions. Now, the chair said, um, spoke about your analytical Marxist um, background. Now, Marx would say that, is it possible to change the form and the content of the institution without changing uh, the wider context within which they operate? So this is one question. The second question uh, has to do with the meaning of flourishing. Could we not have different interpretations sure. of flourishing within the same sure. system? So first on uh, democracy, uh, I think I think the best way to answer that is to draw a contrast between two ways of, of thinking about society as a system. One way is a very organic way, that societies are like an organism. Everything fits together in a nice package. And there's very little room to maneuver. You know, you can't change the nervous system very much of a person or the heart very much without the system falling apart. 
So it's an organic system, a totalizing system. Another is to think of social systems as more like ecologies, like a pond, right, with lots of different species. They do fit together. They, it does constitute a system. Everything affects everything. But it's not coherent. It's not fully coherent. Um, and you can introduce invasive species into a pond. And maybe, if you have the right invasive species, you could even take over the pond and change fundamentally its ecology. And then there are tipping points as to whether that ecological system remains stable or flips from one type to another. Uh, now, that way of thinking about it still recognizes that within that system there are organisms. So there are coherent bits that interact in a less coherent whole. That's how I think, that's why I introduced the notion of hybrid for the economic structure. I don't think economic systems and societies more generally are fully integrated, coherent organisms. They are ecologies of social forms which have partial coherence and it's possible, therefore, to take advantage of that, to find places where innovation is possible that violates the dominant logic of the ecology. Now, that's the principle of democratization in a capitalist world. Capitalism is fundamentally anti-democratic in its character, in the way in which it organizes power and thinks about the rights of power holders to act. Um, but it's always been confronted with democratic impulses to build whatever democracy is possible in the contradictory spaces in that ecology. And that's how then I would think of that. On flourishing, flourishing of course is not a unitary idea. There are many different ways of flourishing. The core of the concept of flourishing is the notion of realization of potential, a development of skills, developments of talent, development of human possibility. But there are of course many heterogeneous ways of doing it. And I'm deliberately silent in privileging any one of those. There may be ways of flourishing that run counter to the notion of an egalitarian principle of human flourishing. And that would be one of the normative problems that one would have to confront when certain forms of flourishing only are possible because of the deficits of flourishing of others. Well, that's a problem. But I, as I said, I think that normative trade-offs are inherent in, in any um, project of um, morally driven social change, and that's one of the ones one would have to worry about. Okay. Just to quickly add to that, yeah, the, the problem of utilitarianism and pluralism is the issue there, isn't it? Um, my one is, one of the major building blocks of this new society would it have to be a compulsory democracy where people have to vote at a local, national level. Um, an example of that would be in boardrooms for, sal right. um, for these pay rises, all that kind of stuff in the Middle East, etc. So would you agree so, with Yes, and uh, note that my definition of democracy is that all people have equal access to the necessary means to meaningfully participate, not that all people meaningfully participate. So it's equal access is the key issue. Uh, by, and the test of equal access is that you have no complaint if decisions go against you, against what you want, because you have perfectly equal access to participate in those decisions and to contribute to their formulation, but you opted out. Now, so I don't, uh, you know, on, on the pragmatic level, are there circumstances in which forced participation might be a good thing? Well, possibly. There might be circumstances in which, even though that violates part of my self-determination principle, 
it might be for pragmatic reasons that you'd want to make it costly for people not to participate under some circumstances. I don't have a meta principle that says no, that would never be allowed. But it isn't, it would be a violation of my democratic principle to force people to participate. But I might still do it because life is complicated. Um, we've had three men so far give interventions. I would like to at least well, we can't, um, we can't leave this person up the top who, unfortunately, is another gentleman. Yeah, you'll get back on the list, I promise. So let's have a couple of women. Yes, here. And then, and then one up there. Um, just a burning issue for me. Uh, do you think it's realistic uh, to think that Greece could succeed in, uh, um, in transforming, let's say, uh, the EU a framework towards a more socialistic one? <laughs> Thank you. Um, you know, if I could, um, if we can get into the realm of wishful thinking, leftists are very good at wishful thinking. It's, it's been what's kept us going for a century and a half. <laughs> so the, the, the wishful thinking side of me is that this crisis could open up a space in which radical alternatives become credible alternatives. That is part of the fantasy life of the left, is that out of crisis is born innovation. Uh, the historical record of crisis being the context, sharp crisis, being the context where breakthroughs occur that are robust, is not great. It's not great. A lot of advances occur when people have room to maneuver, where there's ability to have give and take, to make innovations that are problem solving but not too threatening and then they turn out to be bigger deals than people thought initially. So I wouldn't, you know, so my wishful thinking part, which is embedded in my intellectual tradition that I fully embrace, hopes that out of crisis comes innovation and then the credibility of previously marginal views, but I would be pretty nervous. Uh, repressive authoritarian resolutions of crises are the more likely outcome of prolonged crisis historically, in any case. Yeah. Hi. Um, on the issue of sustainability, do you think the existence of nation states poses a fundamental barrier to the creation of real utopias? Um, <clears throat> well, in the same sense that capitalism constitutes a fundamental barrier, but it's just, it, it depends upon how strongly you want to use the word fundamental and barrier. If there is going to be real utopias, they're going to occur in a world of nation states. It's not the case that we will first eliminate nation states and then build real utopias. That's pure utopia. That's not real utopia. <laughs> so it can't really be the case, therefore, that I think it's a fundamental barrier. barrier. Because if it's a fundamental barrier, then forget about real utopias. So since I do, in fact, think that we can build alternatives, we have to do it in spite of the ways in which nation states create obstacles. We have to think of, within the global context of a world of nation states, just as in an economic context, where are the cracks? Where are the opportunities? Where is the possibility for building trans-border networks of social transformation? An interesting but small example, but very much an example of the sort of thing that I uh, am working on and think is important. Uh, in my hometown of Madison, Wisconsin, there's a cooperative coffee roaster called Just Coffee, a nice pun. I, I recommend that you go on the web and just look at it. They've got a fantastic website. 
They have formed social networks with coffee grower cooperatives in Central America, bypassing, bypassing the equal exchange and fair trade networks because they feel those actually do not place enough emphasis on the relations of production in the, in the South. So they have co-op to co-op networks in which they import their coffee from uh, Central America. And then they bring the growers to Madison so that they can learn to be coffee roasters and open coffee shops in Central America, in Nicaragua. Uh, well, that's an example of something that's happening in spite of national boundaries, in spite of all of these things. And of course, the new technologies of communication make that possible in a way that it wouldn't have been 25 years ago. So yes, it's a barrier. It's not a fundamental barrier in the sense that it makes it things impossible. Thanks. OK, back to um, our neglected <laughs> balcony person. Yeah, I mean, it's, there are marginalized groups in the world, and people in the balcony at LSE are part of them. <laughs> um, well, you've had three speakers now. That's not so bad, you know, three out of eight. OK. <laughs> I mean, I keep, trying to, I, keep, I keep trying to be optimistic. It stops me from killing myself. And um, I do like your framework of hybrids and contestation within the frameworks. But, yes, but. It's how you challenge deep-seated structure. I mean, we live in a world where the structures and ideologies of the IMF and the World Bank frame how we act and how we think and how we work. You know, co-ops at the level of the Brixton Bicycle Co-op or even at the level of Mondragon do not challenge Goldman Sachs. Goldman Sachs still lend them money, still extract surplus through the interest on the money. They are still locked within a logic of the market and cannot actually contest that market. And so they internalize exploitation, if you like. Yes, they can produce a more democratic and humane workplace. But I also see that um, the Conservative Party in this country is now in favor of co-ops. And if they're in favor of it, I always have trouble. Um, and we're in a long period where the gains of social democracy, you know, the partial ameliorations of the capitalist domination are on the retreat on the retreat across Europe, retreating even from the small gains they made in North America, and so on across the world. So how do we produce a hegemonic vision of a transformation, which just working in the asterisk is not enough, and yes, radical transformations have led to status Stalinism as well. That's why I struggle to be optimistic. Right. Um, I'm glad that you're optimistic enough not to kill yourself. Um, my, my, uh, my, my grandmother, in her 80s, when she was blind and um, you know, sort of struggling to adapt, and to she learned Braille in her 80s, uh, um, she said to me, she said, Ricky, that was my name as a child, she said, she said Ricky, I, I, I thought about suicide, but it just doesn't pay. <laughs> she said it with a Yiddish accent, so it had, it had a little more oomph to it. Uh, look, uh, thinking through strategies for what I would describe as a democratic agenda for finance is, is crucial. I didn't mention it here. It's, um, it's one of the themes that I'm indirectly 
also thinking about. Uh, Mondragon, just parenthetically, created its own bank as a way of getting around the credit market constraints that worker co-ops have. And that's one of the reasons why it dominates the local, perhaps even the regional economy in the way it has. Because it was able to partially opt out of the dominant uh, system of credit and finance. Uh, and um, I think we need to think through models of al alternative models of finance and alternative models of democratic finance. One of the things on my list is what's called solidarity finance, which is an alternative way of thinking about uh, financial circuits. So I do think that's part of the problem. That, that has to be solved. I, I think, however, that it's easy to exaggerate the power of these institutions because a lot of their power comes from people's um, belief in their power. Now, I don't want to get into a kind of postmodernist thing that it's all in our heads. I don't think that's right. It's not just discourses. But there are more possibilities of, of working around building alternatives, building alternative institutions which reduce the impact of, of these global capital flows by rerouting uh, economic relations in local and regional economies. Uh, sometimes the efforts at doing so sound, uh, perhaps to some people, a bit silly. The, uh, just as an example, the locavore movement to have more food sourced close to cities and to reduce the dependence on long-distance movement of food as the basis for provisioning cities. Well, the locavores can be a little fanatic about this, but there's something about that which is very attractive. Uh, and there's um, uh, movements in the United States now for building urban agriculture in the old cities that have lots of empty space, vacant lots, because of the abandonment of the center cities. And those are actually pretty interesting new developments. But they also involve disengaging parts of the local economy from these broader forces and, and circuits. And again, <clears throat> whether cumulatively doing all that amounts to an erosion of the power of dominant, particularly finance institutions, or it's just survival adaptations within the constraints, uh, that I think is uncertain. Just one correction, though. I feel that these, what I call symbiotic strategies, are every bit as important as interstitial. Defending the welfare state and expanding the forms of decommodification of labor, both defending them and expanding them, I think, is an essential part of the equation. It's why one of the things that I'm very strongly supportive of and feel has a, um, a kind of key cornerstone quality is unconditional basic income as a component of an alternative configuration. Because unconditional basic income is a way of uh, liberating time from its dependence upon capitalist relations and opening up space. It's one of the ways that co-ops, this is running on longer than a an answer to the question should go. But um, unconditional basic income, the idea that everybody gets their basic needs met by a <coughs> redistribution of income on a monthly basis, unconditional basic income, solves to a significant extent the credit market constraint of worker co-ops. Now that might seem surprising. How does an unconditional basic income solve a credit market constraint? It solves a credit market constraint because the main reason why banks don't loan to worker co-ops and therefore worker co-ops are so undercapitalized, the main reason is not that banks are anti-co-op. 
you know, they'll loan money to an organization they think is profitable. It's because they see them as high risk, and they're high risk because, unfortunately, workers have to eat. If worker co-ops had a stream of income unconditionally guaranteed independently of their commercial uh, success in the short run, because they have an unconditional basic, the members have an unconditional basic income, then all sorts of business plans of worker co-ops that previously were seen as high risk become low risk. And they can therefore get, uh, be, get capital through credit markets. So unconditional basic income expands the viability of the cooperative market economy within an overall capitalist market economy. It might even expand the viability to the point that, um, to go back to the first half of the 19th century the Proudhon and the Proudhon-Marx debate, Proudhon's fantasy that um, worker co-ops could outcompete capitalism. They would just be so attractive to workers that capitalists would cease to be able to get a labor force. You know, that was the sort of vision for how you could transform and go beyond capitalism through cooperatives. It was that worker co-ops create such a better quality of life and security for workers that once they were in place, they'd have no trouble recruiting labor. <laughs> And capitalist firms would be starved for labor, and worker co-ops would squeeze them out. Well, maybe an unconditional basic income can be thought of as a, a, a way of bringing Proudhon's fantasy uh, to reality. Uh, let me just get a yeah. I, I just want to get a feeling for how many people, because we're really getting close to the end. I think I will just take okay, a okay. few now, because and I can I can hang around afterwards, even if we're booted out of the uh, auditorium so, so, to uh, so, chat with anybody. I mean, I don't think we'll be able to get everybody, but let, let's um, start with this gentleman at the front here, um, and then this woman over here, then the woman behind her, and lastly this gentleman with the white baton. This man here, in, in, in front of the woman with white. Yep, you. Yes, thanks for that inspiring discussion. My dilemma are a number of issues here. You mentioned capitalism, inequality, and sustainability, and also the unintended consequences in terms of contradictions and the extremes of the inhumane. In your experience, do you really believe that capitalism can be reformed in terms of the practicalities of transformation and empowerment? Is it really feasible? Okay, thank you. Um, I'm also concerned about the unintended consequences, especially having grown up in Yugoslavia. Um, I'm, I've got a question is, do you think that thick ethnographic descriptions of potentially appropriate organizations, little real utopias, uh, would be of use in, in assessing the impacts and unintended consequences? Like, in, in short, would anthropologists be of some help here? And, and right yes. behind. <laughs> My question is actually very similar, and, and in just in more general terms, I was struck by the fact that there, there doesn't seem to be a specific place for the notion of culture within your um, overall system. I won wondered whether this is a deliberate choice, or maybe somewhere you just, you just didn't get to it. Thank you. Okay, and lastly. You mentioned Scandinavia. Um, early on and made the point that, that those countries illustrate ones where capitalism is more 
ameliorated um, than in perhaps the United States. Uh, but it's ameliorated, I think I'm right in saying, by the state. Um, is it therefore not uh, a model that we should think very seriously about? Is it too statist? Okay, so uh, let me, as, as inevitably happens, let me go in reverse order on, on, on these things. Um, it's true, Scandinavian social democracy is a statist, has statist solutions. But note, my framework is not anti-statist. It's not an anarchist framework. The state figures in four of my seven configurations, and two of them are tightly connected with uh, social democracy. Uh, uh, the uh, social democratic status regulation of capital and the associational dem democracy. So I think those are viable components. I think the weakness of Scandinavian social democracy is precisely its over-reliance on those two configurations and its uh, lack of development until recently, although I think there's movements now in this direction, towards the development of the social economy and the, the cooperative market economy. Now, those developments in a Scandinavian context then make a, full, a more fully pluralistic institutional model by which popular democratic forms can impinge on, on economic practices. On, on culture, um, I think culture is tremendously important. It, I didn't emphasize it here because I was running through things so, so rapidly. It's important, I think, in, in, in two kinds of ways. In the in the strategic, in the transformational logics, a lot of what is transformed are people's expectations about what's possible. Uh, the, the social limits of possibility have this very peculiar character that what's, the limits of what's possible depends in part upon people's beliefs in what those limits are. Unlike in the speed of light, you know, before Einstein, the speed of light was still a constraint on how fast things could go. Uh, the discovery of the speed of light didn't change the actual limits of possibility. Transformations of limits of possibility through real utopia is one of the reasons why real utopias I consider part of the strategy itself is that they demonstrate that new alternatives are possible and therefore expand people's beliefs about limits of possibility. So culture matters on the transformational side, but it also matters for the, um, the possibility of a stable equilibrium in these new institutions. Uh, one of the books in the Real Utopias project, the, the book that was just published, Envisioning Real Utopias, is the sixth book in a series. Uh, the others are all focused on particular institutional contexts. The book before Envisioning Real Utopias was called Gender Equality, not Gender Inequality. You, you, one of the um, symbolic efforts in the Real Utopias project is to name things by what you want, not what you hate. So gender equality is the name of the book. Uh, and part of the issue in that book is how to transform the normative structures that stabilize or destabilize more egalitarian forms. Uh, and so culture certainly figures. On the ethnography issue, um, I am a completely eclectic sociologist in terms of methods. I think that uh, finely textured, fine-grained, not just description, but fine-grained analysis of lived experience is absolutely crucial to understanding how experiments work, because they work or fail in the lives of people who are trying to make them work. 
So um, ethnographic research on cooperatives are, as just one example, are crucial. I have uh, two graduate students at this point who are doing ethnographies of uh, worker co-ops precisely with that purpose. But they're combining it with more structural and institutional analysis, not just uh, the ethnographic, more cultural side of it. I think it's really melding these different ways of understanding the processes by which institutions are both reproduced and transformed are what's crucial. Can capitalism be reformed? Well, uh, I obviously believe that capitalist societies can be transformed. Um, I see the transformation of capitalist societies not, however, as reforming capitalism in the sense of just making a better capitalism, but transforming social relations so that those economies are less capitalist. Um, now, this is, of course, a little bit playing with words. Making a capitalism less capitalist could also be described as reforming. Let's see, that was up here. I'm sorry. I was not looking at the questioner. Uh, making a capitalism less capitalist could be described as reforming capitalism. But of course, it will be done with capitalists kicking and screaming. It's not something that they embrace. But there are capitalists. I mean, you know, it's a, this is an important point. A Engels was a capitalist. I mean, he owned cotton mills and subsidized the writing of Das Kapital from the proceeds of exploitation of Manchester, I believe Manchester, right? Manchester uh, cotton workers. Uh, there are capitalists who embrace the idea of capitalism as a system that creates great harms and seek ways of transforming it that don't also create chaos and disintegration in which suffering increases. And so some of these projects of interstitial transformation and even symbiotic transformation to expand the spaces, for some of them you can enlist the uh, support of capitalists as well who want to see a different world for their, uh, for their children and for the world at large. Um, well, there's a famous um, two-volume history of the Enlightenment by Peter Gay, and at the beginning of that book, he characterizes the Enlightenment as a recovery of nerve on the part of um, human beings. And I personally feel we've been living through a period of failure of nerve, and I think it's particularly striking that Professor Eric Olin Wright has come today and helped us in our time to try, in a small way, to recover our own nerve in printing uh, this optimistic scenario. Let me just remind you that his book is on sale outside. He'll be staying here for a little longer and ask you again to join me in thanking him for coming and speaking to us today. <laughs>